0: Hello and welcome to the OCR Exams podcast, where we'll be chatting with a range of guest speakers from the world of education. My name's Anthony, I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. Here at OCR, we're committed to supporting teachers and exams officers at every step of their journey with us. We're also here to help our students reach their full potential, and some of our podcasts will feature tips and advice on revising, preparing for exams and managing mental health. Please remember to like, comment on and subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you're using and be sure to follow our other social media channels. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube and Instagram. Just search for OCR exams. You can also find a range of subject specific blogs on our website, ocr.org.uk forward slash blog. So let's get started with today's episode.
1: Everyone and welcome to this episode of the OCR podcast. My name is Rebecca Simcox and I'm the subject advisor for health and social care and child development here at OCR. Today I'll be chatting to my guests about SEND, what the areas of SEND are and how parents, carers can get support. This is um, a two-part podcast and we will be sharing part two of the podcast soon. And this will focus on the support in schools and colleges and in the home. So let me introduce today's guests. We have Emma Winstanley, who is the SENCO Deputy Designated Safeguarding Lead and the Personal Social Health and Economic Coordinator. And we have Dr Nicholas Grigsby, who is a Senior Deputy Head, both from Stonyhurst College in Lancashire. Hi, both. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having us. No, thank you for joining us. Um, could we maybe first of all start with Emma? Could you maybe give us a bit of background about your role, please?
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, basically up at Stonyhurst College, I am the Head of Learning Support and the SENCO and I work with children from the ages of um, 13 to 18 mainly and support our wider campus um, send colleagues with young people um, from uh, 3 to uh, 13. So yeah um, basically my role in school will be to head up the department that offers a wide range of supports across the boarding school context for young people with special educational needs and disabilities.
1: Fantastic and same question Nicholas.
0: Yeah hi Um, my name's Nick Um, I'm the senior deputy head at Stonyhurst College. It sounds like a sort of job like being minister without portfolio, but actually what it is is quite significant. And my job really is to worry quite a lot about making sure that everything is as safe as it can be for children and young people. So the nitty gritty is the operations, really, that it's sort of happening day in, day out, and and all the cogs that sort of join up together are sort of working in a nice nice sort of way. Um, But one of my most serious responsibilities is working with Emma, and her team particularly to make sure that our learning support and our STEM provision across the school means that, um, uh, that everyone who has the most acute needs is having their needs met as far as possible. And if needs be, I can make sure that people are in a room and I make sure that if they need to sort of bang heads together. That sort of happens really on behalf of the children. That's quite important. I'm very lucky, I'm in mean, my 28th year in education. I've been really lucky to work all around the world, um, New Zealand, Poland, mainland China, all sorts of other places like that. And that's given me a huge lens on sort of children's education. Children all around the world are exactly the same. Children and children it's just sort of what we do and that's my job is to sort of support people to do the best that they possibly can.
1: That's fantastic thank you and thank you for taking the time to be with us today I'm sure you're both very busy. Um, Okay so first of all I think the first question for our listeners would be um, what are the key areas of SEND?
2: So yeah, if I come in on on that, yeah, we obviously support the SEND Code of Practice, um, and we work really to to four broader categories of need. So basically, yeah, if I just kind of talk through through what. Uh, the understanding of these areas that include. The the categories mainly, uh, the four categories first being communication and interaction um, needs for, for young people and that is linked to young people perhaps with speech, language, communication difficulties or those who may have difficulties communicating with others And again, you know, this kind of area overlaps and we probably will touch on this a little bit more uh, during the session. But um, this can include uh, difficulties linked to ASD, uh, autism and basically communication and interaction difficulties that um, uh, impair social interaction, language, um, communication and imagination in some respects. Further to this, um, again, this is mainly the context in which we work uh, the cognition and learning category of need. Um, is often the, the, the largest area of need in a school. But that is in terms of supporting young people with learning difficulties um, that are a result of when young people learn at a slower pace than others. And much of this includes um, issues such as specific learning difficulties, um, dyslexia, dyscalculia. But again, it can be more broader in terms of the moderate and more severe learning difficulties associated with um, again, complex learning difficulties and cognition um and processing. Um I'm sure again, in terms of, of the the other areas of 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 need within the code of practice, I mean categorizing social, emotional, and mental health difficulties. I'm sure people on the on the call this morning will understand this has become a a huge focus, but this particular category of need um, relates to the social and emotional difficulties that can manifest in different ways. These can kind of, we identify young people who might be withdrawn or isolated, they might um, display challenging behaviours or disruptive behaviours, but really this is linked to the the kind of mental health and underlying um, problems that can include anxiety, depression, self-harm. Again, it's linked to what impact that can have on physical um, symptoms as well, but Mainly, you know, we are looking at um, a lot more kind of pupils with attention deficits or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders being classified under this category, and then again, the the kind of fourth category um, that we work with. Um, is the physical and sensory needs that some children may have and again these may fluctuate over time as they say but nonetheless there are um, there are specialist provisions that you need to put in place for young people for example with vision impairments or hearing impairments or they may have a more multi-sensory impairment that um, requires additional or different support Um, we are like you say um, probably going to talk about it a little bit more but Often the children that we work with, they don't. We can't squeeze them into one particular category, and um, they 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 do have co-occurring difficulties that um, require you know different types of support. But they are the four kind of types of send that you know teachers and, and parents will be um, kind of signposts to.
1: Thank you. Um, I think you mentioned quite a few different types of SCN there. Just really wondering how, you know, how do these different types of SCN really affect children differently um, as there are so many different varied types and how, you know, how are you finding that you're keeping up with all these types and then, you know, you're, you're able to decide like what support to put in place?
0: I think, Rebecca, I'm going to answer your question in a slightly different way before I hand over to Emma about it. Um, So Emma's talked there about quite a lot of detail about the things that we see. And I think for people listening to this, they think, well, how does that relate to uh, an independent school in a way that it might relate to a maintained sector? And I'd sort of say, perhaps some people would be surprised to hear me say, not really any different anywhere because it's children and children present with all sorts of different needs. Now, our setting is a co educational boarding school that has about 27 nationalities that come to us from around the world. And they mix in quite nicely with um, pupils who are here, you know, because they live in the UK, wherever they may be, just locally down the road or here. But to Emma's point, Um, There really is, because we're non-selective, a really broad range of all the needs you might you might think of specifically coming under the same code of practice. But when perhaps people also don't think about the significance of social, emotional, mental health, et cetera, other well-being things as well. And I think particularly I think the landscape before the pandemic was slightly different. And I think many, many settings were sort of stretched. And I think post-pandemic, there's a whole range of different issues and so on. And I think that um, the the really, really interesting sort of point about this is that I would say from a perspective that we just see such a broad range of things um, that we're expected to be resourced to take a look at now. Um, and that I think the pressure about that and around that is going to increase some some extent to do with sort of signposting and parents' confidence to sort of share what the issues are, get that sort of source as well. But just because it seems to have increased particularly, and I think some of that around sort of anxieties about developmental delay of people's in v- various lockdowns and things like that. That. So I think we're going to need to be much, much more agile as a profession and as a, and, and the various sectors within that as we approach um, uh, these sort of matters going forward. I don't know if Emma has any take on that.
2: Yeah, I think kind of coming back to to your question, like what Nick said, um, you know, you're working with with a much different kind of picture than you initially were. I mean, a lot of young people, the the the, the experience of school and education has been so different. So natural transition points perhaps from primary school through to the secondary setting have been somewhat impacted by this so I understand that you know for example in in younger children EYFS and in in the primary phase speech and language difficulties um, have been presented through the lack of social interaction and now they're manifesting in in like a classroom setting and I think from a kind of parent's point of view and working along with the schools I mean ultimately you know we're working together in partnership to close the gaps but sometimes you know there are presenting needs for example nick mentioned like anxiety and um feelings of low mood or you know the fact that they they noticeably feel they have been left behind you're not just dealing with the more traditional kind of um cognition and learning issues you're, you're dealing with a more multifaceted kind of approach to to mental health as well so um like Nick said about the agility, it's teachers now are taking on different roles and picking up uh, strands of perhaps early help type work uh, that would have been delivered by a multidisciplinary team. Um, so yeah, I think it's it it is um, particularly with SEN children, and, and not all of them are the same, you know what I mean. And the the need to change over time, and and that agility I think is crucial um, to securing the best outcomes for some kids
1: and parents. Thank you. You mentioned that teachers are picking up, you know, different things now than maybe what they were before. So how would you prepare your teachers for that? Are they given any specific training or, you know, um, inset? There is some really fantastic uh,
2: work taking place, I think, to support um, teachers in educational settings. Um, we work with charities such as... Um, ADHD Northwest to look at targeting support for children and young people who may be um, exhibiting challenging behaviour in a classroom setting as a result of um, a neurodiverse need. And I think schools are, are working much more to acknowledge the 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 kind of preventative model. So kind of intervening at a, a low level. Teachers' CPD programs, for example, our, our INSET program um as a standing item is at the beginning of every term is refocus people's attention on inclusion and, and um SEN and how we support, you know, in the classroom, because at the end of the day, you know, um our teachers sometimes see children more than their parents do and they spend a great deal of their time in a classroom setting, which would mean that, you know, developing relationship with people, consistency, you know, and, um, developing progress is really important. So I know that, um, again, in, in other settings and in other schools, um, there is a, a a larger dedication of time to to support teachers with the varying needs. Um, we do a lot of work around uh, low mood, how anxiety can manifest. Um, and obviously within, within a pastoral kind of context, in a boarding school setting, um, we try to have a more seamless approach because, you know, like I, I, I noticed... It's important to recognise senator doesn't switch off at five o'clock. So our young people with additional needs who live with us in the evenings and weekends um, require that enhanced support, very specialist support. So, yeah, I think, like you say, we working with um, specialists who can ensure knowledge and give us kind of tried and tested strategies. It provides a degree of reassurance um, and consistency for staff. And it, again, like Nick being a senior senior leader on the call here, um, that dedication to 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 you know working with this agenda at a management level is often the key to success.
0: Yeah, I think Emma raises a really good point there about sort of signalling that you do have a senior leader, somebody in SLT actually on the call here talking about special educational needs in school settings, and I would probably quite controversially say that 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 is not often the case universally, regardless of whether you're talking independent or maintained. And I think there's a bit of work to do there about the significance and the seriousness with which um, SLTs do realise that this is such an intrinsic part of, of your school about getting it right, because these are your children who have the most acute needs, vulnerabilities, you know, the need to really take them, take their circumstances as an individual. And I think you raised a really good point, Rebecca, in your question at the top of this. Which is how do you train teachers? How do you provide the resources to it? What sort of things are they seeing? What do you expect them to do? And I think the sector and through government needs to take a really good hard look at how it supports people that, quite frankly, are really really stretched. And the analogy I'll give, as I, I mentioned, sort of put some a little bit of humour, I suppose, into this, is that sometimes a teacher is expected to be anything but a teacher—a social worker, a rat catcher, philosopher, psychologist, zookeeper—you know, um, expert on behaviour and all sorts of other things. And it's just like, at what point does it stop that you? say, actually, what I really, really want you to do is to be the best version of yourself and unstressed and in the classroom doing amazing things to help kids navigate what is quite a turbulent world at the moment. And we don't need to go into all that, but obviously it's about as turbulent as it's ever been, I think, probably since around about 1945 or thereabouts. So so there's huge responsibilities within leadership teams to understand the complexity of sound, the range of presentations that are coming out these days and all sorts of things and things that we've not yet even sort of, you know, tapped into as to how they tick and why they are what they are. And I think in addition to that as well, we've got to take a good hard look as a country about um different parts of the country about how our external agencies and resources are supported and whether people are able to fulfill the professional functions that they are able to do because because it's on behalf of young people and there's, there's nothing you can't argue with that it has to be right for young people
1: thank you thanks for that nick um emma can i just ask now i'm just wondering what would be the usual process when it comes to a diagnosis for a child well,
2: like you say, I mean, in terms of considering the the four categories, some needs will be more kind of uh, prevalent, I would say, than others. And there are different kind of pathways into achieving the outcomes that you need to secure. So, for example, um, working very closely with parents is is so important. And, you know, not necessarily everybody is on the same page at first, but my, my kind of, you know, what, how can I put it, that to achieve a diagnosis and to kind of at least acknowledge, you know, what, you, what you're needing to adapt or to change and to kind of fix for young people, I would say it's based on, you know, evidence-based decision making. So, for example, you might have a young person who's struggling with low mood, concentration uh, issues. You know, the parents are saying... When they get home from school, they find it, you know, we have it a lot of the time, 10 minutes max and that's it. They can't concentrate anymore and it's, it's kind of keeping that communication open and, and, and flowing with parents that you can then start to develop uh, an idea of trends and patterns and you can start to kind of formulate a picture of need for that young person. And again, you know, in terms of the code of practice and the assess, plan, do, review process, which is what, you know, schools uh, and colleges work towards, that kind of assessment of need is crucial in how we factor in, you know, a lot of schools are data-driven and they look at that as a kind of indicative point of um, where where a young person might sit in a wider year group, but we all know on a human level, you know, as a class teacher, sometimes you have got feel you look at it, you think, actually, are they are they settled? Are they making progress in line with the other kids in the group? You know, is there a pastoral input, for example, or are we aware of circumstances that might impact on the learning? And you start to kind of build up this picture of need, and then you go through, you think, right, actually, I need to make a change now. The, the kind of process, I always say, you know, it, it's often slow for some parents who have really struggled with young people and teachers who perhaps have got, you know, p- particularly challenging young people in their, their sets. However, I think it's really important that we don't kind of jump the gun too much and we don't start saying, well, actually, we think you're a child and we, you know, as amateur psychologists start making and profiling young people, it's very easy to do. And I often have conversations that are very, you know, What can I say? Challenging in the sense that people flippantly throw in terminology or, you know, you know, they're a bit on the spectrum or, you know, that young person, he he can't concentrate. He's got, have you got ADHD? And without the knowledge and education around, actually, those conditions can be quite debilitating and they are very kind of um, difficult for people to live with. Um, I think building that picture of evidence-based decision making and reviewing support is the first step of of actually kind of looking at whether or not that's the pathway we need to go down. So in a school setting, that would be class teachers talking, working together. Uh, we work as a multidisciplinary team with nursing and counselling support as well as the pastoral leads, and you build up that picture and you kind of you know stress test what are we doing and is it working, and then again. Bringing the parents alongside with you, you know, what do we need to change together in order to perhaps overcome this barrier um, or circumnavigate it? And again, that process would be in place so that if you were then at a threshold where the tried and tested methods of intervention on a school level have have failed or uh, are not showing signs of progression, then that is where you would start bringing in the more specialist support. So it could, working with the SENCO, it could be that you bring in speech and language. It could be that you start working with uh, teams such as CAMS to, to look at that dynamic. And then, you know, again, it's important that throughout this process people are, uh, are clear and, and and transparent in what they want to achieve. But ultimately, you know, we've had it where it's been quite cathartic for a young person, or particularly a parent, to actually said, you know what, actually, I've always thought this. What you're saying to me is basically demonstrating and validating that, yeah, my gut feeling was right, you know what I mean? And uh, again, speaking as a parent myself, you know, Some people spend hours trying to go over studies, trying to read with young people. We get it where, you know, they just don't want to pick up a book. I think that kind of whole assess plan do review process gives people a voice and it captures the feelings of young people. But ultimately, if you're if you're faced where you're in a position, you've got like a lifelong diagnosis of autism or you've finally accepted that in your 40s, you know, you've had ADHD. And I know that it's it's not an uncommon conversation now, particularly women with ADHD. It kind of, it's like a cathartic validation of everything that you thought. Do you know what I mean? But the whole process to get to that diagnosis has to be based on, do you know what I mean? I would say... Um, decisions and and evidence that support you know your your beliefs complex and different pathways i guess for different kind of outcomes but um it's important that schools recognize their responsibilities at each stage of this um and and keep parents again parents know the kids better than we do and um you know it, it is a real partnership
1: okay thank you um the next question is what is an e h c p What happens if a child has an e h c p How can it help to support that child? Yeah, well, as
2: part of this process again through the identification and diagnosis stage um Senkos will talk about whether or not it's appropriate, and other healthcare professionals, perhaps, or other agencies, talking about the educational health and care uh, plan uh, for a young person. So essentially, what this does is is bring together a document that will outline um, the, the the identified special educational needs, support, and interventions that are necessary to ensure that a young person achieves their outcomes. Now. Again, this is basically, you know, a document that is a legal document in the sense that it holds to account local authority provision um, school level provision and the input of medical services where, where it's appropriate to ensure that basically um, the, the young person, you know, from not to 25 can kind of work throughout this um, process of having their needs met in order to give them the best possible chances. So in terms of having that within a school setting, what we would do is make sure that obviously working together with other professionals, um, we review the type of support, the the frequency, and that that is captured in this document. And for some parents, uh, you know, it can be quite a challenge and, and it can be a challenge to to kind of make sure that other professionals have the views that are shared. And I guess. When we do have the EHCP, um, and it, again it, it's a parents and young person's right to, to request this assessment, that kind of document um, will basically support them throughout their educational journey when they move into college or when they want to move into education uh, further educational work.
0: Yeah, and Rebecca, I think Emma's put that very well. I would reflect on your question in a slightly different way again, slightly bigger picture, which is that you mentioned what is an EHCP and what does it actually mean? And I think that goes for lots and lots of things, particularly in the area of Sen, is that we're very jargon based. Education is quite jargon based and you can break things down into lots of lots of um, sort of bunch of letters, basically but does that actually mean that people understand and at what level? Do the kid understand what that is? Does the parents understand what that is? Does your specialists and your professionals in school, probably most likely, what does that actually mean for a teacher? And I think if you take something like an education and healthcare plan and all the necessary things that go with it, what do we actually do either as management or as a Senko in school? To sort of support teachers to understand what that actually means for the child who has one, what that actually means for the parents and the pressures and the stresses and strains and all the rest of it, and then to sort of build that big picture in the teacher's mind as to what that actually might mean for the individual, the kid and the families and all the rest of it. And I think it's really, really important responsibilities of managers actually just to sometimes be less breathless and work out where you're going to find the time to walk alongside your teachers, to actually take the proper sufficient time to understand what jargon actually means, like education, healthcare plan, what that actually means. If you start to sort of break it down and, and you know all the different sort of working parts of that and the review stages, the sheer volume of paperwork actually, even the recognition of what it does to your senko or people in their team is, the, just how many hours in the week you're working on administration paperwork, you don't often get the support through like a bespoke administrator, somebody who understands what the bunch of letters means. It's a bit like driving into Wales, you know, it's like a whole bunch of letters all jumbled up, and that's about what it actually means. Um, and I think that's really, really important responsibilities, and perhaps leadership can sort of take that on board sometimes.
1: Thank you both. And I think you mentioned that about parents. So um, I think it'd be really interesting to hear about. If a parent is concerned about their child and they think they might have some needs, like what do you think the first thing is that they should do?
2: I think... Um, in terms of this, I mean, again, it, it, you go with you got instinct. You know what I mean. You 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 were often presented with a picture of what uh, a, pro, a, a professional teacher might think uh, your your child is like, and you're looking at it, you think actually that doesn't quite add up. And basically, I would say if if there's any reason that you would think that your your child has got a, a, a special educational need, it's really fundamental that. You know, you have the 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 ear of your school, particularly because they spend a great deal of time, and also they are great advocates for young people to kind of give them the opportunity to 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 see themselves and to understand, you know, their profile. I think the parents um, need to kind of be reassured that again, um, schools have the the school offer in place, so they have um, published documentation that you can see on the website to to capture. The, the the provision that they're offering, you would look at that and you think, actually, you know, I'm at this particular point and I believe my young person, you know, my child has got a special educational need. I would look at that and look at, well, what can they do for my child? So ultimately, you know, we need to kind of understand um, by working with the same cause, working with the teachers it depends on what part of your journey you're at. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I'm an English teacher and, you know, you want to make sure the foundations of um, support are in place before you perhaps hit a threshold where a diagnosis or an, the identification of a special need is actually the the point that you're at. There's a lot of effective work that can be done at a school level that can kind of, you know... Um, be supportive, some, sometimes preventative. Um, you don't want to be kind of, I was going to say, identification can be an issue. Some things can mask as other things, you know what I mean, before you start unpicking it. But the parents really and working together to, to support SEND pupils. If they do feel that's the case, it's a case of having that transparent conversation. Now, again, coming back to my earlier point about how SEND can be co-occurring, um, you may have a young person, dyslexic profile, who can just keep going and keep going, but actually they're like a pressure cooker. So the, the pressure and the unmet need potentially can manifest in a different way, such as challenging behaviour, or it could manifest in low mood or, or something similar. So that sometimes can detract from the core core of the issue. We work very closely uh, with children and family to try and explore underlying factors so that you are able to make a a judgment call on either whether or not perhaps the specific learning difficulty um, assessments need to take place Um, and yeah um, sorry Nick yeah you want to come in
0: I just think you raise a really interesting point when you describe yourself as an English teacher, because that's that gives a bit more context as well, that you're not just a Senko, you're actually somebody who's in a classroom. And I think it goes back to the notion in schools as well about schools still have this really industrial revolution model of the hierarchy of subjects. So the people who have a horse in the race are often your maths teachers and your English teachers who are looking at things based around data and spotting children with particular needs in their classroom, or hopefully spotting children that have sort of needs that need to be sort of take, addressed in a better way but it's always based around that being first interesting I mean I'm a music teacher and I still teach music regardless of being in a leadership position and that's really crucial because there are other types of you know, teachers and skilled professionals in school who just see children in a slightly different way and they see them doing different things. So my subject's a very practical subject and often I can spot quite a lot of the signs and, you know, colleagues who are trained as well can spot a lot of the signs around things like where dyslexia impacts them, like reading music, doing music and actually trying to perform something or dyspraxic skills or other sort of developmental delays and motor skills. And then you sort of break that down and you've got really, really amazing, interesting people that come into schools. And the way that a TA might work, a VMT, okay let's break down the jargon a visiting music teacher they work one-to-one with a child and they do that all week and that's what they love doing and all the rest of it but they see so much as well that contributes to the building the picture around a child as well sometimes but it's whether a school is able to actually listen to that and all these different voices and sort of bring them in to basically build you know listen to the child what does their pupil passport actually say because the child said this but all the other things that specialists can build into
1: Thank you. That's really interesting to think about how the school works as a collective, um, you know, for those diagnosis and the support for, the, for children. Um, and I think my final question um, is, if a parent is trying to choose a school for their child, um, they maybe already have a diagnosis. What sort of key things do you think they should be asking or, or looking into when they're visiting um, maybe a new school to help them make their decision?
0: I'm going to start this briefly before Emma speaks, okay? So obviously I'm in a sort of leadership role in the school. So I'm quite interested about the whole business of recruitment and admissions. And I think the answer, which is probably not what you're going to expect to hear, is about honesty and it works both ways. So it's being, honesty with reciprocity and I'll explain what I mean by that. It means that when you're coming as a parent or a family or somebody caring for a child and you want to take a look at the school is just really take the time and in a hurried way to look at everything that you need to do and to speak to people and get the sense of whether the school's being honest and obviously we're a school which to some extent is a business because we're in an independent setting and people pay fees to come here. We're non-selective let's be really clear about that but you want to meet that the school's honest. Not just taking the child on without saying honestly we can meet the needs of the child and we are resourced to do that or if we're not resourced to do that we'll look at the profile of the child and the family and say okay we think we can invest in resourcing that and looking at it and doing it and I think equally my plea is sometimes as well to families is that sometimes families keep things a little bit buried and it's because they're nervous to share with the school they think that we'll basically put our hand up show them the door and say no no, no it's not happening we're not we're not taking the child very rarely is that the case but we just want to be satisfied that we can meet the needs so I said be honest as a family and say the more that we know in advance the more you can prepare, plan, resource, budget, all the rest of it. It's not total pie in the sky because I know some schools are under massive pressures to do that and they just don't have the resource but honesty is really important. I don't know if any how Emma would add to that.
2: Yeah I think Definitely. You put it in a really kind of succinct way because honesty, transparency, but I think the really core values in part of having, you know, a trusting relationship. And I think much of the success for all children, not just children with SEND, is based on successful relationships within a a school setting. And, for example, you know, there's it is is a very difficult predicament because you know you want your child to be the happiest and happy kids thrive and and when you know you're dealing with issues and parents particularly in our context you know they they go the many you know it's a significant commitment on a number of levels but you know considering transport considering the whole package is really important and considering whether or not you know the 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 wider um, values particularly for our school Um, The co-curricular programmes, the sports programmes, the arts and other areas that, you know, a lot of the time young people with additional needs, um, you you know, gravitate to because that's where they're happiest, but that's where they thrive and the the true kind of potential comes comes forward. I think it's important that parents... um, kind of outline expectations as well and just explain you know in some cases that you know we we have it where you know a lot of the time yes they have to jump through the hoops of examinations and you know we're quite fortunate that we have a lot of support in order to adapt pathways and look at you know the right model of of education for for our young people but ultimately yeah i think it's um, it's really important for parents to just kind of you know be at peace with the fact that they may not achieve X, but you know, they'll be so happy and they will thrive to achieve Y and, and perhaps find themselves in, in in the school setting. It's often the place where they, you know, they 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 come into their own, they, they make friendships, they develop, you know, they they kind of acknowledge what they want to do career-wise. And I think finding a school that, you know, kind of ticks every box is is pretty difficult. But I would say that the realistic kind of um you know, finding a school, it's what makes your kid thrive as best as they can, be as happy as they can, I would say. It sounds a bit old-fashioned a bit romantic and all the rest of it, but it's true. And, you know, we know that, again, we talked about parents, you know, SEND doesn't switch off at half past three. When they come home, you want to know that. The homework, they have support for that if they need it. The, we have you know, young carers in school as well who potentially need that little bit of different types of support. Is your school willing to do that and accept that, you know, children's needs are very varied? That's the type of reassurances I would say you need at the point of admission.
0: Yeah, and I would agree with what Emma said there, actually. She raises loads of really interesting points about that, about the relationships that we need with people coming in. From my point of view, I'm really conscious as well that people listening to this cast as well, um, they might think I have sort of, coming from an independent sort of setting, you know, a private school, is that we look through sort of rosy-tinted spectacles a little bit as to about what the needs of people coming in are, what we can do about that. And I'm really conscious that in some settings, so in the maintained sector, you might not get much of a choice about a child that is placed in your school that has particular vulnerability or behavioural issues or other things about them that makes them much more in need. And that can really, what I call, it's an ugly phrase, but sweat the assets in a school particularly. And that's why it's really, really crucial, that particularly if you can get families to have a trusting relationship with you that as far in advance as possible, they're able to feel comfortable to share all the different layers of the onion that you need to strip away around a child just to make sure that the resources can be there. Because if you don't have that honesty and then you get lots and lots of cases where you just didn't know what you were dealing with, it very quickly, completely maxes out and sweats out the assets in the school and that stresses teachers massively in the classroom that's a huge impact because they just don't know what it is that they're dealing with or you didn't have all that you needed to know around the child to put in place what needed to be dealing with and and that's a big risk for schools and particularly with larger class sizes and things like that and with other additional needs around sort of behaviour, um, around having very bespoke sort of interventions around kids in class, you know, quality first teaching can quickly diminish in quality. Um, and so that's, that's something to be aware of.
1: Thank you both. And that's really valuable advice for, you know, for our parents. So that's all for our Send Part One podcast. Thank you to Emma and Nick for joining me. To everyone listening, I hope you found this episode very interesting and keep an eye out for part two, which is coming soon. Don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and students, and please get in touch with us if you need any further support. All of our contact details and social media channels can be found at ocr.org.uk forward slash contact.